0: Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Nico Franks. Today, we hear from the historian and broadcaster Dan Snow, Kate Beal, founder and CEO of Woodcut Media, and Lana Sala and Chris Reindorp of UK Factual and Formats label Rex. Dan Snow is a historian, broadcaster, podcaster and writer who cut his teeth presenting factual programming for the BBC before co-founding History Hit in 2017 a digital history network that publishes across podcasts, social video platforms, and subscription streaming channels, billing itself as Netflix for history shows. In 2021, Snow sold history hit to Little Dot Studios, and since then the network has grown and made headlines last year when he took part in the expedition that located the shipwreck of Ernest Shackleton's Endurance on the Antarctic seabed. The expedition is currently being turned into an exclusive documentary by History Hit for Disney Plus and Nat Geo, while the company continues to produce originals for its customer base of History Buffs, as well as supplying factual programming to the likes of Channel 5 in the UK. I spoke to Snow about the ways niche streaming services can use their nimbleness to make original content that hits the zeitgeist, as well as the part the factual industry can play in averting nuclear disaster and the threat artificial intelligence poses to on-air talent. Here's the first part of our conversation.
1: I'm Dan Snow, I'm a broadcaster, podcaster, writer. I am the creator director of History Hit, which I founded a few years ago to disseminate history and all the different platforms that we've got these days.
2: And we're going to talk about both your on-screen and off-screen uh, responsibilities in this chat, beginning with, I suppose, a kind of wider look at the world of SVOD and particularly niche SPOD, because I think it's been an interesting time for those big streamers, you know, facing some some headwinds. What's the market like for a popular and um, successful but but? Would you admit, you know, niche streamer like history hit?
1: Yeah, we are. You're absolutely right. We're a niche sfod channel. We're we're a super fan channel. We are a little bit smaller than uh, Disney Plus and Netflix. That's certainly true. Uh, we are finding uh, actually we've had one of our best months of um, uh, retention and and finding new uh, new customers. So that's good. Um, it is what what wins for us is just like a lot of it is organic so a lot of it we have to, if we, we you know we um when we come out with different new programs that are just really good we just see spikes you know if we come out with stuff that sits people always laugh outside their world of history you talk about newsworthy history but when you think about the news when you think about like the zeitgeist people the things talking about it's amazing how often history kind of intrudes on that so we at the moment we're talking about oppenheimer of course the big movie just been released Uh, whether we're talking about some fines that are being made, shipwrecks, the Titanic shipwreck, the tragic news around that this year. So we find that when we put out content that also has a bit of a tailwind behind it in the rest of the media, we we see enormous upticks. So it's not just a matter of tweaking the algorithm and, and, and giving Mark Zuckerberg as much money as we can until he delivers us people that are interested in history. It's also about the kind of content that we produce. So we find that we have really good months when we got we got exclusive on a new, find a new shipwreck being discovered, a great story. Uh, and And we had that last month. So it's been good.
2: And you mentioned all the different platforms and ways people can access your content. Can you tell me a bit about the kind of life cycle in terms of an idea for a show or a podcast? You know, what comes first and how do they kind of feed each other?
1: Well, yeah, the dream, the dream for us is that we come up with a, a piece of content that works in a really cross-platform way. So, therefore, so the other day, a new prayer book was discovered that we think belongs to Thomas More, who is the character in the amazing Hilary Mantel novels, and everyone's at the moment everyone's favourite. He's the British version of Hamilton at the moment, like a reasonably obscure important politician from the past who is now having his moment. His you know every everyone's uh, everyone's singing his song, and so we. Uh, was sent one of our, like an amazing, one of our collaborators, uh, Professor Santa Lipscomb down. She looked at it. We broke the news in in collaboration with uh, a couple of the museums and uh, that were working on it, the experts that were working on it. We then had a podcast ready to go. We had social video ready to go. And then we had the long form. Then we had a YouTube offer as well. And we had long form sitting behind the paywall. So if people are really keen, and they've interacted with all this kind of stuff, top of funnel, as they say, they can go and, uh, and head through that on that subscriber journey. And that's the dream, you know, you know, that's when it's really operating well. So we've got all of the free stuff. People can interact with that. It's great. You know, we we I love getting reaching huge audiences, and it's it's a it's a great privilege to do so. But what funds it all deep down is the is the subscribers who obviously are only a percentage of, of that big number of people that interact with our content. But they are there, and they are the engine of everything we do, and they support everything we do. So that's why and we can, that's why we can react quickly. We can we got in house we have producers, editors, we uh, and we can whip down make that show, turn it around quick and and get out a, a really pretty pretty a nice bit of television content uh, that people can sort of, Watch in the evening, you know, long form, as well as all these kind of short, sharp, exciting little features that we can produce on the platforms.
2: And would you say what are some of the key things that differentiate a history hit uh, show from something maybe for a more traditional broadcaster, uh, as well as a streaming uh, original from a kind of big player
1: like Netflix or Amazon? I've always derived a lot of inspiration from sports. And I've never understood why in sport you are allowed when you're commentating on sport to go super analytical, super detailed straight away, because you assume the audience out there love their soccer, love their football, love them, whatever. And I've kind of gained inspiration from that with history, which is like, what if there's a market out there of history fans who also just are happy to go like straight up to 11. And that's not to say our shows, they all have to have good story. they all have to have, you know, they all have to be coherent and they're not all for like super history geeks. but. I think there's a little bit of the element. It's like when you're watching that rugby match or or the Super Bowl, no one's having to explain like, anyway, this is why they're standing like this way, which is different when you're making a history show for a traditional linear channel because it's just a general audience. We have, we the, an audience has come to us who are, Happy to pay a subscription every month. They are—they love history. These people like you never find yourself having to kind of explain why this story is interesting, which in my career at the BBC I had to do a lot. They're like you almost felt like you had to justify why you're there. Hey everyone, it's it's a Spitfire wreckage in a bog. It's really exciting. This is why it matters. You're like my audience on history, it don't need anybody to tell them why a spitfire wreck in a bog is exciting and important and interesting so i think you're able to start from that point of view you know you're among friends you know you're you're dealing with fans like super fans of history so i think that's the big difference
2: and do you take kind of uh, inspirational kind of crowdsource ideas from that community in terms of the comments they leave the messages you get anything like that
1: Hundred uh, percent, and this is something that we're getting better at. But yeah, we had podcast, uh, a hit podcast the other day, one of the biggest uh, on the on the feed, was suggested by a listener. Um, we have had many, yeah, many examples. One listener suggested a podcast, and we did it with him, and then he got a book deal out the back of it. So that's that's cool. And so, very much so, um, we li- In fact, we, in fact, we go. I'll go beyond that. We live or die in by for, for the kind of breaking news for the exciting. You know, we can go and make a show about uh, D Day. That's fine. Wherever, you know, we know where we know the story for D-Day. We 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 can go and look up the latest research and make sure about D-Day. Talk to the experts. However, where where somebody a university, a group of enthusiasts, and group of archaeologists, a group of community archaeologists, they're digging something up, they're reconstructing something, they're building something. When they get in touch with us, that is gold for us. That's gold because we then can um, bring sprinkle our magic on it and and and, and get that out, amplify it, and get it out to a huge audience. And that's genuine, you know, stuff that we get. It's kind of a scoop. In, in our in our little parlance, in, in our history world, it's a scoop. Uh, if somebody's, you know, flying an old plane for the first time, having been restored, if someone's digging something up that's interesting, and we are very dependent on on our relationships uh, for that, and we get people coming to us all the time, which is great. And the really lovely thing is when you get people coming to us twice and three times, because it means you must have done right by them the first time, which feels very important.
2: How do the kind of crews and, and the actual kind of, productions compare uh, when you're filming to those previous ones. And you've worked on lots of different shows of very different scales.
1: We're light on our feet, but then everyone's light on their feet these days. Right. But I mean, so yeah, when I started industry, I got, I got the tail end of that kind of golden age of like crazy um, just sort of staffing. And it was great fun. So I was like 23, four, five, like craning around the world with like teams of eight, nine people. It was so fun. It was social. It was great. I think in the last few years, most show, I mean, not the, the big, huge shows, but like a, a, I think a kind of normal show for like a Channel 5 or like there isn't a huge international co or whatever, the crews aren't that different. Like, you know, most of the time. So what I think is different about us is that the crews, we all work together all the time. I mean, in a way, I kind of, I like mixing the old and new. I, I think we're, in some ways, we're a bit like a 1970s newsroom in, in that we're all in-house. So we're not just freelancers coming in. So we all know each other really well. Like we all hang out with each other and we all... Go to each other's weddings or whatever it is. So there's a, there's a, there's an ease of slipping into a story that you can you get in that kind of almost more newsy environment. Uh, and so there's a, there's an understanding when you head out on the road, you know how each other work. You can make savings there. You can save time there. Like so, for example, the producer will know what I'm able to talk about and what and what I don't know. So they won't spend a bunch of time scripting things that I'll be able to do. They'll, they'll focus on the parts of the and not just me. The other hosts and presenters we have they'll focus on the bits about what what a particularly the research is showing that this particular site, so this is the latest academic research, which a general host presenter would, like me couldn't be expected to know. But they then don't have to write like a whole bunch of stuff about, this is a period of the Napoleonic Wars in which this was happening. Like I can go away and do that bit myself and they can trust me. That So we have that kind of understanding. So we are quick. We're quick to work. Our shooting ratio is very, very healthy because we don't have execs Going, I just didn't like that bit. You know, what we shoot, we use. So um, we again, we we trust the director, we trust the people on on the spot. So we we can we can turn around a, a kind of thirty minute show in two days. We run the interviews a bit longer because again, we think we don't think our audience is getting bored of a contributor. They're not getting bored of someone. We'll run an, ex, an expert interview longer. So we have certain advantages, but we're not. You know it's it's not like shooting everything on an iphone and running around and on uh, on a on, the, on a bike you know we still have equipment and stuff
2: <laughs> and some of the the work you've done has has eventually kind of ended up on those huge streamers like disney plus with endurance which was a real milestone production how how are your relationships with with kind of so disney plus and nat geo
1: yeah good Good so we're making a huge show for them on the Shackleton discovery at the moment which is you know just that's that's bigger I than we uh, we was filming the other day and we had like a, we had lots of cameras and studios and all sorts of people buzzing around it was like the old days it was great fun and then we have a an ongoing relationship with Channel 5 so we've been producing um shows for them for some time so I, I think you know that we just put on different hats on those occasions we we, we become we become a more old-fashioned i don't think there's, there's no sense like hey we're history we know what we're doing we're going to do it all our own way I, th- I think actually we are happy to fit into the structures of of that more traditional uh program making and it and it helps that i, I come from that background um bill lock our head of tv is one of the most well-known and respected um Producers of, of long form history out there. He's been working for 30 years in that field for Lion TV. So he immediately feels very relaxed. He, he loves the way we do things, but he also feels very relaxed sliding back into that older way of production. Like we don't, you know, we, we don't, I don't think we try. I mean, we, we try and in, uh, put into action what we've learned, but we're not here to be super disruptive and, and tell like Disney plus how to do things.
2: <laughs> and obviously a lot of people still watch, you know, they get their factual uh, and their history shows from the BBC, Channel Five, Disney, and and History Hit. But there's a lot of people getting them on YouTube. You know, from sort, you know, channels that are you know not regulated in the same way that definitely broadcasters are, and of all different ages. Where do you see your responsibility in terms of directing people back towards, I suppose, you know, more factual uh, history content?
1: Netflix made a huge show with a lot of conspiracy theories about a- ancient civilizations and stuff that was really popular. And so I, I do think in on there are, there are days when we we what we do is kind of important. And and that so that's two things. One is kind of dealing with conspiracy theories around the moon landings and around ancient aliens and Atlantis and stuff. And secondly, of course is around politics, which is people derive justification for for uh, modern. Uh, policies, actions from history, from sometimes imagined history, bad history, but whether it's Vladimir Putin saying Ukraine never existed. Um, well, so we, you know, we are one of our most successful ever YouTube films, is like the history of Ukraine. So I, I really enjoy those those areas where history interacts with the news agenda and the political agenda, and that can be around climate, and it can be around um it can be around kind of the rebirth of nationalism and people talking about communities and regions that ought or not to be in in different um incorporating different nations um depending on their history or a misunderstanding their history korea always does extraordinary well for us weirdly i just look at the numbers the podcast last week and korea was the, the hit of the podcast last week korea people are fascinated by korea you know there could be you know, whether it's the South China Sea with Taiwan and China, whether it's Korea, whether it's Ukraine and Russia, are <laughs> the risk of getting a bit heavy here. You know human life on Earth will be considerably affected if any of those three conflicts go nuclear. They all involve nuclear powers. They all involve uh, states that are run by people who in, in authoritarians, many of whom appear to be, you know, ha- have all the human frailties and corruption of all authoritarians all over the world. So like uh, we hang by a thread. And that thread is connected to the history of those regions and people's and, and importantly people's understanding of those histories. So you know, does President Xi think that? Like how much does he think that Taiwan needs to be Chinese, based on its past relationships? Um, well, that's all going to be down to his reading of history and his kind of under, and his sense of where he wants to fit within the history of the Chinese Communist Party and indeed the, the history of China itself. In the same way, like to, to what extent does Vladimir Putin wish to press his claim to Ukraine or certainly eastern provinces of it? Like again, this is history in Crimea. So history is incredibly important. It's incredibly important the Middle East. Everyone knows that Israel Palestine is a is a. A, a conflict with history at its heart. So I think, and I want to do more of this, I, I love the episodes where we talk about the history and how it kind of reflects and, and informs the present.
2: And are there any areas where you think traditional media back in the day when platforms like YouTube, Netflix, history hit didn't exist, when they covered certain subjects, they covered them in a way that perhaps now, you know, doesn't feel accurate or, or representative? Uh,
1: I I cut my teeth in the in, in the BBC, and I've got to say that the privilege of working with good budgets, time of people just sat around the office reading for weeks, you know, it was incredible to look back on. And they, there was a public service ethos there that everybody felt the there were facts in the script, yet to get it right. The joy of what we do now is that we can just be more flexible. <laughs> like, we just, we can reinforce success much quicker. We can... Um, if if an interview with a contributor goes bonkers, we're like, hey, we'll put the whole interview online now and edit it if you want. And then that can just it won't be for everyone, but it's it's a nice, it's a nice thing to have for a YouTube audience or a subscriber, a special subscriber perk. The other thing that is true is the evergreen nature of it. And the part that's partly just the internet, but it is partly the fact that There's a huge emphasis on these new streamers on acquiring new subscribers, and they think that new content is really important. Which, of course, it is. But we can we also change our uh, like homepage and can put a documentary from two years ago up there because history it will be evergreen. It will still be as interesting, and if it's been we're going to miss the first time, it will get a second flowering. So that's nice. So it doesn't. As a creative person, it feels like there are there are more. You're, you're more likely to get recognised to watch stuff than when you're in the BBC. And I had an experience there in 2004 when one of my shows went out against the opening uh, opening ceremony of the Olympics. And it was one of the biggest television events in history at the time. And my show on BBC Two, well, my show was on BBC Two. I'm like, Jesus, it got crushed. And, you know, we'd put a year of our life into that. And that was that, gone, boom. Might get, it might get repeated one day. And you're like, this. so as a, as a creative, I think it feels... I like the, the, I like the, I like the streaming. I like the repeatability of the internet.
2: There are potentially AI tools, you know, maybe just from this conversation we've had alone that could get enough of your vocabulary to then you give it a script and it could be, you know, an AI Dan Snow, definitely all your podcasts kind of taken together. It could, how nervy do you feel about the impact of AI on, on screen or on air talent and what it could do?
1: Well, I think it'll be, I mean, if there's one lesson that we have all learned from this crazy ride we've been on since 1991, and Tim Berners-Lee pushed the button on that first website, is that none of us have had a clue where it's going, and none of us have had a clue how big it gets. So clearly, AI is going to transform everything. Uh, anything's possible. Like, it, yeah, in 10 years' time, we, can, bro, we don't need those flesh props anymore. Get rid of the humans. We've got some um, AI. Who wants AI down to snow? You AI, AI someone much better than down to know. And that is one option. The other option is we see a kind of dash for authenticity and people want to see real stuff. Maybe that will happen. I, I do not want to predict it, but I do know that it's going to continue. Like, if we think the last 30 years... If we think like before AI, I remember before the kind of AI awakening this year, it was since like, yeah, you know, well, that like 30 years, it's been like radically transformed. Maybe it kind of, maybe all this just stops. Maybe that was wishful thinking by the people in winning at that moment, right? But the one lesson of this tech revolution that we're in is like, it doesn't stop. And like, it, if it, surely it will accelerate as we get more capable. And so we, the whole industry is going to be transformed. Like what on earth are we going to be doing in 10 years time? I have no idea. Sorry, I've got any answers there.
2: Kind of drawing on your history knowledge, so there's that famous phrase of those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. What are some of the the biggest lessons from the past you think uh, are that we can learn from to deal with the challenges we face today?
1: Well, the fundamental lessons I think is that what you see around you in the present is neither uh, inevitable or immutable. So, like, the, the where we are now it's not inevitable, like the fact that we don't routinely in um, in Britain have suffer from periods of mass starvation because of poor harvests. like that seems really medieval now and silly but that's that's not there's no reason that can't that we can't return to that. And so so I just think everyone needs to be everyone needs to be less blase about the extraordinary steps forward we've made in the world around infant mortality or or vaccine production or whatever it might be. You need to you need to celebrate what you've achieved. And, and by the flip side of that is that you regard them as worth fighting for so that you don't smash up your democratic political system for short term party political gain like a previous prime minister of this country, Boris Johnson. So so I think that's the kind of that's really important. So what we've achieved, it can easily go wrong and easily so like don't get blasé. And then there's kind of smaller practical things. One is around climate. Like there have been periods of astonishing climate breakdown in, in human history quite recently in the 17th century, we think one third of all human beings died because of global cooling. So like it's real, it's happened before um, and it the, the consequences can be absolutely enormous. A, a, a lot of it is around um, crazy politicians who, who, I mean like the things that Donald Trump says are things that leaders have been saying throughout history and, 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 uh, f- f- to advance their own agenda, to claim that they're being attacked by their political opponents, uh, all that kind of stuff. So th- we've heard all that sort of things before. So you have to be very, very careful about the the statements of of, uh, of charismatic leaders like people like Donald Trump. So I, I I look around me in the world. I think there's very few things that history can't can't provide insight to.
0: Dan Snow with commissioning freezes at Channel Four and Channel Five. It's been a tough summer for UK indies by most accounts, but Kate Beale says the indie she founded almost a decade ago, Woodcut Media, is in a good place, thanks to various returning series for international buyers, such as World's Most Evil Killers and Suitcase Murders. True crime is the prodco's most prolific genre in terms of hours, and Woodcut recently joined forces with nine other indies in the UK and Ireland to launch the Association of True Crime Producers to establish best practice guidelines for the sometimes controversial but ever popular genre. Beale is chair of the fledgling association and is keen to see all members conform to the highest ethical standards and support the integrity of true crime production. C21 news editor Clive Whittingham spoke to the exec about the association's focus on duty of care for contributors, as well as Woodcut's business plan over the next five years. Beale also discusses the potential opportunities for UK unscripted production companies as a result of the ongoing strikes in the US, and the company's push into factual entertainment as it looks to add some levity to its slate of grisly true crime series. Here's the first part of their conversation.
3: So we are in a good place at the moment, and the reason we're in a good place is because we're very fortunate to have lots of returnable series. And that is um, a blessing in difficult times. It was a blessing actually during COVID to have returnable formats and returnable series. And similarly, we're finding it in the kind of, you know, uh, cost of living crisis that we're in, the same applies. Um, We have four main areas that we have and always work in, which is true crime, specialist factual, premium documentary and factual entertainment. Um, True crime being the most prolific in terms of hours, Um, We have the long-running series, World's Most Evil Killers, which is on season eight, I think. And by the end of this summer, we'll have done 160 episodes of that. But equally in the true crime space, we've just done some limited series and feature docs for Amazon, we're making a ten-part series for Oxygen in the States. Um, we're doing something for Discovery in the UK, Suitcase Murders. Uh, we're quite prolific in the true crime area. The second area specialist factual, which is the sort of the science, history, engineering. We are producing. Well, we've just finished Queens that Changed the World for Channel Four at the moment. We obviously produce the long-running Combat Ship series for the Smithsonian. Um, We've got a couple of other things I'm not allowed to talk about Uh in this factual space. Um, But we, although aren't as prolific in ours, I do think actually we do do more projects than people realise in that area. And especially um, at the moment, we're very much forging ahead with female revisionist history. So um, Queens That Changed The World was a really good partnership with Channel 4 and us to try and Break a few molds, not just in the style, but in the content of the programming and the way it's told. I call it Bridgerton history, um, history for women about women.
4: Okay. Um, and
3: And uh, the uh, another project we're doing again is very much in that space. And um, unusually, there aren't many female execs in the world who you know come up with and exec produce combat ships. Or last year we did hit the Hitler the Lost Tapes. There aren't that many female, hardcore, military yeah. specialist factual execs, and I'm proudly one of them. So I've decided to tell women's yeah. stories. I've been telling men's stories for years, and I've been telling Hitler's stories for years. I'm now going to tell the stories of the women. Um, anyway, that's my soapbox. Um, then premium documentary, we're in. We're doing a two-part premium special at the moment, I can't talk about, but they are only few and far between because of the nature of them. You know, I think people bandy the word for premium around quite a lot. Um, you know yes we do other feature docs for amazon in the crime space but that doesn't come into the pre- premium category because these have to be you know really kind of like properly unique access um and so we're doing something there and then our factual entertainment and this is something i could talk more about is obviously a growth area for us we've got Meryl beal joined earlier this year and that's a big thing um we want to bring joy to the world I want to bring joy to my life um, in the fact I want happy programs as well as all the kind of, you know, serious and heart, uh, more, yeah, heart kind of strings type of stuff that we do. Um, I want a little bit of levity. And, and we have, you know, we've done magic shows and paranormal shows and um, clip shows. And we, we've done all of that, but we're now really focusing on it to grow it.
5: Let's talk about true crime first, because it was the thing that, um... The thing that you mentioned first and probably what the company was best known for and as areas of expansion we'll get into. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how you see that genre at the minute and trends, because obviously it used to be sort of self-contained. One hour is always a murder, usually a female victim, um, went serialised on the back of Making a Murderer, has gone off into different sort of stranger than fiction, Tinder swindler kind of directions, where is it now? What's trending there? What sort of programs are doing well for for you in that in that space?
3: I think the key is everything's trending now, and that's the key with true crime. It isn't there isn't a fashion in terms of um, form or shape because all of those forms or shapes have grown in the past few years. And now everyone's happy to have a little bit of everything. So even the networks, you look at something like a Sky Crime, they have their temple specials, but equally they have their 10 part adjudicated and there is space for those both on the channel. Um, And some of those are three parters with one story or some of those are a 90 minute special or some of those, what what we're not getting is the 10 part making a murder at one story. That's not happening anymore. I think people realised that it was a few too many hours long.
5: Yeah, it was that um, much rushes.
3: <laughs> um, but it did an enormous amount of good for the genre. But I think the true crime genre has matured enormously now, and it isn't really, you know, the genre. And then it has lots of subsections now. So in the way, you know, the Woodcut Slate has 20 episodes of World's Most Evil Killers, but equally, you know, 90 minute of Confessions of a Psycho Killer and everything in between and those you know something like world's most evil killers is incredibly formatted it's got beats it's got a proper format you could actually sit there and write the bible there is a bible for it um and so it's more it's not it's not the right word but it's more the format entertainment side of true crime whereas you know confessions is more the kind of off the dock. um so uh, there are different spaces in it but the thing about it is that every single channel is doing it or every single network is doing it which is just incredible that actually everyone is a customer for true crime now and they all have their own different way of doing it um but everybody wants those sort of incredibly um, powerful meaningful stories told which um yeah so we're in a boom still extraordinarily i thought the boom would be over by about three years ago um but no i think people understand that the appetite is still there from the viewer.
5: So with that, with that boom, obviously there's only well, you, know, you would think there's a finite number of stories that are good enough to tell on the television. you know it has to it has to be a good story first and foremost, right? So how do you go about finding those cases that haven't been covered um or, and then as as well as that, how do you go about sort of making sure it's not exploitative and focusing on the victims? that strikes me as a sort of trend that's 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 big in that space now. But yeah, how do you find the stories, your research and development into that?
3: It depends if you're talking US, UK or US. So it's easier to find stories in the US because there are simply more people um, and more murders to choose from. And the UK it is becoming increasingly hard. And so you have the kind of the really famous stories like you know, Moore's Murders, Fred West. So um, the people surrounding those probably get approaches every few weeks, I'd imagine. Um, because the appetite is so voracious in the UK. And actually it's something that I have worried about and I have been thinking about over the past year. And I don't know if you saw, but we set up the Association of True Crime Producers. And actually that came from... The worry of how are we treating victims' families, the worry that we were all running to the same story and fighting for the same stories. And okay, there need to be some rules of the game here. There need to be some kind of um fair play amongst each other and equally, most importantly, with the victims and the families, that they're not treated in such um, you know, yes, we all want a commission, but it's only television. It's not worth somebody's life or some you know it, it, ruining somebody's day to be honest is which is what happens when you write them the letter and it's that letter lands on the wrong day it can be terrible yeah. for somebody if they've lost their daughter so it's thinking about how we do that thinking about well what is the best way in the ethical approach and that's why we all gathered together um not to say it's not to say enough it's enough because actually there's a lot of value in true crime and i think people do find it oddly reassuring and comforting especially in difficult times there's a a reason is that people go to that because actually you know you've heard this before true crime is very neat in its storytelling there is good and there is evil and at the end of the program most of the you know the, the perpetrator is in prison or is on the death penalty and so all is right in the world justice has been served the police have done their job and good has won so in the times of covid or other difficult periods that's why true crime perhaps gives a sense of reassurance in this crazy crazy world However, so so there is a value in it and they're really interesting stories and they're the stories of good and evil that we have always since Shakespearean times told but you are absolutely right in the uk especially there is a saturation point not because the the viewer would probably still watch you know fred west version 150 but should we be telling that or how we tell that or how we approach to victims needs to be discussed which is what we're aiming to do
5: let us talk about you know, the factual entertainment expansion and the the higher that you mentioned because that it's sort of happier happier topic tell us about the sort of direction of travel that you want to go in going there
3: since the beginning of the year or end of last year woodcut has sort of been you know, we we've been surviving the last few years like every other indie we've simply been hand-to-mouth surviving can we get through COVID can we make you know can we deliver this show even um let alone whether we can get another commission and actually we're doing okay at the moment and we're and we have ambitions and I want to grow the company and the team want to grow the company and 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 we're not growing it to sell it and make millions that's not the point we kind of want to grow to create something that we love doing and to create a work environment that people really want to be um, drawn to and nurtured and talent come to and that we can make the best programs and it sounds really corny but the reason we do it is we want to change the way tv works there's a there's a bit of a mission there and so in order to do that we do need to get bigger and we want to expand so we've actually written a five-year plan um which is very exciting will change by the end of year two i'm sure but there is a there's and one of those uh key parts of it was fact 10 and and to two reasons really um firstly to bring joy into our lives because we said you know because of the discussion about crime yes we're still making a lot of true crime but equally i need the other side um of my life so i need to keep happy um but the second part is commercially factual entertainment you know we would like to see the format side of the business grow you know is there more of a kind of longevity in fact 10 and formats um, and so we've we took the commercial decision to invest quite heavily in that so we brought in mariel beal who's hugely experienced and her CV is amazing we've brought in a team to support her um, and she's been developing and pitching ever since sort of february march time um, and hopefully we'll this time next year, I'll be sitting here saying, and yeah, the Fact 10 strategy is clearly working. Yeah, it's always a risk because we are still a small to medium company. We're not huge. We're not a massive indie, but we are choosing to invest rather than take the profits, essentially, at this to, to try and build this. Um, so it is a risk because everything's a risk because you never know what's going to happen or when the ne- next pan- pandemic is but it's an exciting one to take and Muriel's really talented and the team are coming up with ideas and it's really good to have different types of people in the building as well because different ideas are coming out.
5: You're in a a stable place and your returnable series are, are sort of key to that. One of the things we hear a lot at the moment from UK Indies is that Channel 4, Channel 5, whatever, shut down for the summer early, are not commissioning. I know Channel 4 have promised some production briefs in September, but we're hearing, you know, it's tough out there and freelancers are struggling for work and things like that. There just seems to have been a complete sort of commissioning freeze across the, the UK. Number one, is that how you're finding it? You, um, number two, how, you know, how are you sort of coping through, through 2023?
3: It's sort of three things actually. So firstly, it was America last year, started it all off. And actually that had a bigger impact on the indie sector than I think anybody realised or talked about at the time, you know, the Discovery completely shut down and commissioning for such a long time, other yeah. people drawing in hours, you know, Smithsonian, all of them have had a big kind of tectonic shift um, in the States and that because of the amount of work the UK indie sector does for America has had an impact. So that kind of basis was taken away. Or at least reduced, I think it was something like was 25%, wasn't it? The, the commissioning down of script yeah. last year in America. So you remove that, or the the UK's share of that 25%. And then you add in a very slow channel four and channel five. And yeah, no, absolutely, you know, channel four, it's the same for everyone. Yes, we we're in production at the moment for channel four, but these were deals that were signed yeah for Christmas, not anything new um and so if we hadn't have done that if we hadn't have got a few shows yeah we've got 11 things in production at the moment um
5: you're thinking about you're going to need your 11 12
3: exactly and that's the that's the key and that's the worry but that's a worry for any indie at any time you can be as successful as you can be any you can be hugely successful and still on January the 1st or whenever your new financial year is it's still a blank sheet of paper because a commissioner can leave their job or a channel can change direction and you're screwed um so you can never take anything for granted and you can never rest on your laurels the one thing we decided at Woodcut quite a long time ago and I'm really glad we did is we don't have more than two or three shows with one channel at any time so those 11 projects that we've got in, in production are all, you know, that's with Discovery, Sky, Channel 5, Channel 4, Oxygen, Nat Geo, um, Amazon. You know, so we've got seven different networks that we're working with. So actually for us, Channel 4, Channel 5 slowing down is not great and it's not great for next year, but actually at least we've still got other stuff going. Yeah um if all of those shut down at once we'd be in trouble
5: what's the what is the split I mean you've just outlined the channels you're working for at this precise moment but in general what is the split between your US and your UK um Um,
3: three of those are US productions at the moment out of the 11 but financially it's probably 50 50.
5: Right. OK. And how does it because the thing that occurred to me at, at Real Screen in January where there seemed to be a bit of a dearth of buyers relative to to previous years is that it's almost all the same buyer in the US now because Discovery have hoovered up all the cable nets, joined in with HBO. So that's like one buyer. And that geo is now Disney. So that's another huge buyer. So it At only the moment needs...
3: until they sell.
5: Yeah. <laughs> but it only needs like Discovery to say we're not really sending anyone to this event or and disney to sort of say the same thing and suddenly there's no buyers there and it's all one tariff now isn't it so you can't all the discovery channels basically pay the same so how is how is that as someone that sort of wants to to go and pitch to to these networks
3: well it's interesting because what we did at the beginning of the year was change our agent we started with a3 uh mark hamler a3 and that has been brilliant because although it's been a really tough time in the us we as woodcut have had a kind of revitalized new way in and new ideas and new and i i think you know the americans and the, the indies who work with america it has been tough but i i think finally and we're probably only talking in the last couple of weeks things are starting to change right you know, the redundancies i think are over for now you know Discovery's set of latest redundancies are over um and so we're we're heading into a more stable period, and I know that Discovery are buying now. You know, Nat Geo never stopped buying, um, even though it's the same people. I, I I get what you're saying, but it's there are many other buyers out there. You know, so there's NBC, there's Ox- there's there's Amazon, there's Netflix, there's Hulu. There's you can go and have a very full diary of good meetings, um, but everyone's been very cautious the writer's strike I didn't think was going to affect us at all um, because it was just purely writers and I think reality would come out of it and we're not really hugely in the reality space or we're not really there yet we may be in a year or two's time with the fact end development but I couldn't see us benefiting however with SAG joining that has transformed everything and made it more um, difficult for productions to happen so at least with the writer strike they could still carry on to a certain extent but now it's sag that they can't um and so i think there are more immediate needs so i think there's going to be some interesting opportunities coming up for uk production companies in the next few months that i'm starting to hear that there are actual hours but i don't think it's the gold mine that everyone yeah it's you when when people say about the writer they're like oh that's great for uk well are you really going to replace Grey's Anatomy with a true crime series? Probably not. If you're if you're looking at the kind of a big schedule. Yeah.
5: The other issue at the minute, obviously, is like inflation and everything costing more. Travel costs more. Hotels cost more. Feeding staff and people on set costs more. Everything costs more. But I bet your budgets aren't going up in line with that. So
3: no, I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> what is the
5: biggest challenge? Is it is is that it or what it, like what what is it that sort of worries you most?
3: inflation is huge but that had that's not new that's been going on for the last year yeah Um, and 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 especially with staff costs increase as well so the thing is you know people's rates have gone up and that partly came out of the post-covid boom um, that we were all in this wonderful post-covid purple patch um, and that and it is writing itself in that way but you know my head of production this morning you know we are aiming to come out on budget and that is our aim we we can't aim to come out under budget at the moment that's, that's just unrealistic you wouldn't be able to make the program the aim for us at the moment is not to lose money there is no tariff increase from this time last year to this time this year um, and you know in the distribution market we have we're lucky because we've got woodcut international our own distributor but they're not able to deficit more than they were because The international channel, the the international distribution market has slowed. You know, I'm pretty certain if you speak to distributors at the moment, every single distributor will tell you they've had the worst six months of the of their last few years. The first two quarters of 2023 for distribution has been terrible. Um, Yeah. I don't they're not going out of business but they're not getting the deals I think it's really quickly catching up and, it, and we can see as Woodcut International the deals are coming in now and I can see it with the other distributors happening but it's been so slow um so they're not even being you know, so that kind of natural advance you know minimum guarantee kind of thing isn't as easy to obtain at the moment either
5: Slots need filling though, is it just is it literally they're just showing repeats or whatever? It's like well,
3: okay. The question I have, and this is something that I don't know the answer to, is do slots need filling? As we go more to nonlinear and platforms, they don't need as much. Hmm. They don't launch new things every day because they don't need to. So do slots need, you know, do they? Yes, we have linear channels and terrestrial channels and they are starting to slide or people are more accepting that they have repeats on them. Yeah. Um, So actually people keep on saying, oh, people always buy content because people always need content. Well, actually, maybe not, (laughs) maybe not. Maybe people aren't going to need as much content in two or three years' time.
5: Like you say, you've got a five-year plan. How what is the plan? And you mentioned obviously growth in, in fact-tent and formats, but what is the path to growth for, for Woodcut? What what else is on that plan that you can that you can tell us about the optimistic sort of well, actually, to the, to the situation?
3: <laughs> so I've got five elements of the plan. So one is fact-tent, and yeah. that is very kind of obvious, and that's something we've enacted straight away. Um, the other th- the other part is America. So although we've been doing well in America over the last couple of years to make it even more serious and what that looks like, I'm not sure whether that means an American office. I'm not sure. I, I know we have a lot of people working for us in America at the moment um, and that with our agent, we aim to grow. So that's definitely sort of one. You know, number two, Woodcut International is to keep growing it and to keep a, a, increasing the amount we deficit so i think uh, Kula can correct me yeah we probably in the first three years of woodcut international co-financed 1.5 million per, pounds worth of programming um which is brilliant and actually has proven successful and Kula's teams doing really really well so it's doing that and increasing the investment pot and increasing the amount we invest not just on woodcut media programs but occasionally on third party um so starting to work with it and we have been working with other producers a few here and there, we're not, you know, I'm not trying to be the next abacus, that's not what we you know, no one can match Jonathan Ford, but um, just doing a little bit here and there of complimentary programming, you know, we've had a few crime things that have come in that worked really well next to our crime and just increasing that um, and making it more, at the moment, Woodcut International has been a, a service business to Woodcut Media, but to make it more of a business in its own right, that's very much in the plan. Um, I'm going to put down roots a little bit more. And actually, although yes, we're all working from home and that's great, and we have people in, you know, Ireland, America, Newcastle, Manchester, Scotland. Um, we're going to look at sort of formalising a bit more of a regional base. Um, we're a regional company, and that's how we started. And we, but actually, I can't say too much more about that. But we have we have plans. We we want to buy our own house, kind of thing, (laughs) and grow up a little bit, Um, and and just sort of engaging a little bit more with the local area, and because you know in the UK you know being regional is a good thing. In America, people don't care if you're regional. You know, I sort of um on a call with somebody and say, oh, I live in between where the Titanic set sail and Downton Abbey was filmed, and they that's that's fine. Um, And then the last one is alliances with other companies so I'm not saying we're going to go buy other companies that's we're not a big indie like that who can do that however finding interesting alliances and partnerships with other companies with that kind of philosophy of you know gathering together and you can punch above your own weight um that's I think we're interested in exploring how we do that and I think anyway since COVID indies have naturally become more friendly to each other because we've had to start talking much more than we've ever talked before. And actually the Alliance, sorry, the Association of True Crime Producers could never have happened before COVID, I don't think. Um, I think COVID enabled us to start sharing our problems and sharing our worries and actually sort of taking that sort of thread through creating partnerships that might be useful financially for other companies or, good for us and especially in the next couple of years where i think there are going to be a few changes in the sector finding companies or people who might want to ally themselves or find a home with us or i'm not saying we want to be all three media when we grow up that's not what's <laughs> going to don't, don't think that but just Interesting alliances, I think.
5: What are these like? The big changes you see coming down, coming down the patty. The reasons to be fearful or reasons to be optimistic? Like, how do you how do you see this this business changing over the next? Well, let's say three years.
3: I think reasons to be optimistic is that the market is already starting to shift again in terms of they are starting to buy, they are starting to be clear about their mandates. You know, Warner Brother Discovery is is a really clear example of that that they've suddenly woken up and are open for business again. Um, and they're being clear about what they want so I f- I think last year and the first half of this year was a little bit of this and now people are on a on a path to sort of knowing what they need however I come back to the reason to be fearful is I'm just not sure they need as much as they did and that I think so therefore there will be a natural um, wastage I don't think necessarily in unscripted as well I think actually in high-end drama I'd be more worried if I was in high end scripted and high-end TV at the moment, um, because I just don't think they're gonna be doing those massive projects on the scale that they were before, because some of the investments have clearly not paid off yet. And so would you put more money after it? I'm not sure. Yeah, They'll, they'll stu- still do a few, but they won't do it as, as um, you know, the high number that they are. I think in terms of the indie community, I think there is gonna be a bit of a shift. I think the M&A you know, is interesting. There's still M&A happening. But I think it's more of a probably a buyer's market than a seller's market at the moment. In terms of m and I think it's going to be more uh, fire sales rescue bids rather than being a kind of like, look, you know, give me a multiple of 12 for this. I, I also think the consolidators, and you've seen this start to happen, are going to start closing more labels and start consolidating within their labels so people are starting to fold their labels in and create more kind one of systems.
5: leadership one leadership one set of expenses yeah,
3: yeah. exactly Do you um, think
5: still be Indian three five years
3: I, I have no reason to think we won't yeah you know, obviously we like talking to people and but and there are great companies that we could ally with but that's not part of the five-year plan and it's not that I don't want to, and it's not through lack of offers. We have people who, you know, who want to talk to us. But at the moment, it feels right to do what we're doing yeah. as an indie.
0: Kate Beale speaking with Clive Whittingham. The past year and a half has been a scary time to be getting a new production company off the ground. With both broadcasters and streamers cutting back on commissioning, production costs soaring and budgets being slashed, the climate within the content industry is challenging, to say the very least. So it's the London-based label Rex's considerable credit that within its first 18 months in business, it's already delivered two shows for the BBC and another for Channel 5. The company is steered by creative director Lana Sala and development executive Chris Raindorp, who spoke to C21's senior reporter Neil Beatty about their business plan for the next three years backed by Zinc Media Group the company is knocking on doors in the US as it seeks to tap into demand for social experiment projects while it is also dabbling with artificial intelligence in its formats and exploring the ever popular true crime genre here's the first part of their conversation
6: I understand Rex was launched in April of last year is is that right
4: That's so right if, yes that's why right don't
6: you, Why don't you bring me up to speed what what was the what was the um, manifesto when you launched um, Rex what was the ambition
4: you know, I'm I'm a program maker. I've made a lot of shows um for particularly channel four, but a lot of sort of big shows. And my I suppose the the things that I'm passionate and I've always been passionate about is doing popular sort of programming. So taking maybe quite a serious subject but turning it into something quite popular. Um so that's sort of from Jamie's school dinners all the way through to the write-offs, which was about um people with um who couldn't read and write, and sort of doing it with Sandy Toxvig through sort of challenges and making a sort of more end show. So, so that's what that's sort of my heartland of what I love. But I, yeah, so I guess when I came to think, the idea was to set up a label that was that did popular sort of programming and formats yeah and then um chris joins soon afterwards and so we've been working together on our strategy and what we've been doing so we've had a really good first year really exciting we've had a series for uh which we've just we're just in the edit with now uh, called the grand tour rob rinder and Ryland clark doing the grand tour so that's a travelogue i've done a lot of talent led shows and sort of have a lot of contacts with talent as well so that's been really helpful as does chris that's, that's
7: for the bbc now that's for bbc arts
4: so that's exciting. And then we did last year. We did a four-part series for Channel Five, Scandals, which was um, a sort of art, was archive and drama recon show. So sort of retelling some sort of salacious uh, stories from sort of uh Curry and Major to the Hamiltons. And then we did um, we did get your Eurovision on, which was. Um, which was exciting it was exciting to be part of Eurovision for a start but also it was the first time they were sort of experimenting with just putting stuff on iPlayer um, and it was on a loop so I think it was the first time they'd done that so it was you just you had you sort of dropped in wherever the program was and they were really happy with that the BBC they really yeah they really responded well to that and liked it and I think they want to do more things going
7: forward. Well, really excited for us because obviously you know, Channel 4 and the BBC are really pushing more for to go online with everything's driving towards the iPlayer so it was great for us to be involved in that and like one of the kind of pilot projects for solely iPlayer so it was really it was really exciting.
6: So what were, what were your biggest challenges in your first first year of business? What of what kind of obstacles have you overcome or you know what, what are you most proud of so far?
4: I mean obviously it's a challenging time now I mean I feel, I feel like from sort of a standing still position know, people always said if you get one commission you're doing well so we were really chuffed to be doing so well and getting so much traction with different channels we've we've also now got two funded developments with streamers um and Chris has got a whole sort of new strategy for America so um but I guess now's a challenging time more than you know before I mean post-covid you know there was there was more sort of opportunities and things to do, but obviously at the moment with the advertising down and, you know, there's not a lot of commissioning at the, you know, the terrestrials at the moment and even the streamers now are really cutting back and, you know, canceling shows and stuff. So I think, um, you know, loads of our friends are out of work, you know, there's lots of freelancers, you know, so it's, 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 it's a challenging, tough time now, but as Chris would, you would say.
7: Yeah. I think probably I'm just going to reiterate what Lana said, but, what What's made us really happy is within a year, we've kind of gone from being a, new, a brand new company to now the doors are really open. And obviously it is a tricky time, but we've started pitching more in the States. And it's great that we've got such a varied background of delivering shows within Rec. So it just feels like we've already become not a heavy hitter, but we've already got a reputation we want to build on that. So that's been really exciting. But yeah, as Lana says, it's a challenge, but it's kind of just... You just have to work. Well, basically, you have to box clever and work a bit harder to find it, because there are opportunities, but it's just making sure you 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 know you work hard to look for them.
6: And, and Lana mentioned it herself. Um, this um, this American strategy of of yours. Would you go into a little bit of detail about that, please?
7: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, we always set out when when I joined. We were very clear about wanting to target the UK first of all. I mean, obviously, Lana's delivered a huge amount of shows for all the UK broadcasters, and I I have done um, productions for UK, and my previous role was focused much more on the states. So we agreed that we would sort of do the first year, prove our reputation in the UK, and then look to expand it to the US. So we're, we're doing that now. We sort of kicked off about three months ago, really beginning to target show uh, target our shows. Uh, with, with us broadcasters i mean there are we found that the opportunities are obviously there are great opportunities with streamers but they are they are very careful with what they pick but there are a lot of us linear channels that we feel are slightly um neglected by certainly by uk indies so we're really targeting them and we're looking for us linear channels and us streamers that really chime with our with with the kind of rex ethos so I think sometimes America can just be seen like a, as a golden ticket to UK production companies, but it's really important to tailor your pitching style and pitching approach and what you're pitching to their needs. Um, and it's been really exciting. I mean, It's been a really exciting challenge for us to get going. And We have, as Lana said, we started from a standing start, um, but it's it's a kind of process of utilising contacts and then sometimes just door knocking. And it's been a, it's been great to have a really positive response from them. And we're we're engaged in, a, as Lana said, we're engaged in. To probably got funded development from two streamers and we're in, we're having quite active conversations with a few other uh U.S linear channels
6: can you talk any any
7: any at all about what those projects might be or is it kind of lips are sealed at the moment I I think we can't talk We're we're restricted on talking about the funded development unfortunately which is really frustrating but I can talk we've got one one project that's kind of a big scale glossy, where well, it's kind of half reality, half followed doc in the in the sports world, it's actually in kind of I don't know how much I can say, but in the sort of junior motor racing world, um, and that's got us really excited because it is it's kind of sport meets the kind of billionaire lifestyle because it's a very very glossy world, um, and that's been I mean it's quite a challenge to negotiate access to to that world, but we got it, and that's proved really popular with with both UK and US buyers. So we're we're having quite a lot of active conversations around that as well. So that's probably the primary project. But um also in the States they're looking for a lot of social experiments. And Lana's kind of got a background in social experiments. So we've been developing a few, which annoyingly I can't I can't really talk about, but a few very kind of uh headline grabbing social experiment ideas that we're we're pitching out there. And those have proved popular as well. Our golden rule of business is give the buyers what they you know, give the people what they want. So yeah, we we did, I mean we we work we work very closely with our agent, but also we utilize our US contacts. I mean, every need, you know, they, they pivot so fast, US broadcasters, just like UK broadcasters, but it's ensuring that, yeah, we respond with, with what they're looking for. And and like the other area that's really sort of booming at the moment is true crime. Um, and that's a, a new area for both Lana and me, but we're determined to crack that as well. And that's, that's been really fun to kind of develop a new area and look at new ideas and how we pitch those. So that's, that's kind of a need that we're responding to.
6: Right. And are, are you are you guys um, exporting UK-centric content or are you focusing on um, content that Americans relate to that's from their own kind of backyard, as it were?
4: Well, we've um, got both. So, in, ter- so yeah. in terms of like, so access, for example, we've been t- getting access that's U- US access, but also some of our ideas are UK and those are sort of popular with the streamers. Um, I think the access, yeah. So actually, there's a there's some UK access that's very feels very UK centric, but actually the streamers are really interested in because it's very prestigious and high end. And then, equally the US access. Um, hopefully we'll be able to talk about those in another time. <laughs> but um, yeah. So coded, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Um, those would be good but also you know some of the big social experiment ideas like we've been for example we started with an ai idea a lot last year and it's taken us a long time to work up and get to a, a place where we think it's it's really good and ready to pitch but um those sorts of ideas take quite a long time to get to a place but then you can keep them you know on your slate forever because they're all they sort of stand the test of time and they come round and round again and again, and sometimes that's just about the right place at the right time, isn't it? You know, yeah. I never forget. Um, who do you think you are? Always saying that, that they'd had it in their back pocket for years, and it was just that one commissioner meeting, that one time where you pull it out.
6: And have, have you guys actually been physically going over to to the states, or has it been like Zoom kind of pitches?
7: Um, no, I mean the great. That's been the kind of one benefit of of lockdown and COVID is is U.S. buyers are so. I mean, I think everyone across the world likes to work from home so it's been great to be able to do that virtually but it always has to be backed up by a trip so we will we will be pitching physically more in the us just to kind of nurture those relationships and when you're in the room it's just it's a very different energy i mean we've obviously got very used to pitching online um, and that's great and it makes it obviously much less time consuming but it's nice to do that double double approach of in the room and online
6: and um, Lana, I mean, can, can you speak uh, in some detail about what what Rex's plans are to um, how you're going to navigate the next three years?
4: So yeah, so our, so our US strategy that so that's sort of the the big one that we're going for the next year and t- two years, and then hopefully when we've got a stream of commission under our belt, we feel like that there's an opportunity to sort of expand even more, maybe into the states. So that's. That's it. And just grow as our development team and grow within Zinc. We'd also like to, you know, we try we try to collaborate with the other labels. So we'd like to sort of start, you know, doing that a bit more.
7: We've got, we've got a permanent AP as well. So we are a really small team, which is, which, you know, makes it even more impressive that we manage to do what we have. But what's great about Zinc is that there are, it's obviously, we're under the umbrella of Zinc Media. So there are other labels So it does, while we're a very small team, it feels very collaborative because we can work with the other labels. So when we're developing something, it's great just to bring different people together to come up with things. So we are a smaller team, but it feels like we're part of a bigger team and it is very collaborative. So, yeah, we're tiny, but we kind of have access to more people. The branded
6: content element is quite interesting, isn't it? Because it's never been harder to get money for projects. You know, um, broadcasters and streamers don't want to fully finance things. Co-productions are getting harder to get off the ground. I mean, having product placement or sponsorship or some kind of element of that could be a good way to get some some money and yeah. scale. Projects. Yeah, I mean,
4: they all change their minds really quickly. But so, our branded content guy knows like the people at Channel 4 really well. And sometimes they switch from going, We don't want it, we want it. But you know, and now it's like, If you can bring 50% to it. Also, he brings opportunities. So, brands will come to him and say, We want to put money into a program. And then he'll come to us and say, Can you come up with an idea? And then pitch it. Just takes a lot longer. That's the only thing. It can, you know, it just can take, it can take a longer long time. But yeah, there's been some really exciting ideas and opportunities through that as well.
6: If I was to interview you guys again in 2026, where would you ideally have the company? What kind of um, level do you think you'd be at and what, what would you like to have achieved by that state?
7: Well, I'd be sitting right by a pool in the sunshine, I think, Neil, without this kind of grey, rainy London.
4: But, <laughs> I think we would have delivered... a. A, a, a high end big budget uh streamer show. I think we will have um a placeholder in the states and I think we would have continued to deliver some um great UK series. Okay. And yeah. I, I'm slightly grown our development team.
6: Sure. So um, yeah, how many staff would you ideally like the company to, to have with, within a few years? Would you Would you like it to be? Does, is a smaller team more agile?
7: I mean, smaller teams are lovely. And I think they did feel, while well, we're part of Zinc, I think Lana and I both felt there was a sort of, we, we had the sort of tenacious aspect to being a small startup within a large company. So that was lovely. But I think we would want to grow and really tap into the developments in technology with regards to pitching because in the us they want tasters which is very different from the uk where you can pitch from a paper treatment so looking ahead ideally would love to have someone in-house to be able to do that i mean obviously my ap and i can can edit ourselves but it's just time consuming so it'd be brilliant to have someone to do that and just constantly staying ahead of the curve with regards to the best way to pitch I and mean, we already do really high-end decks which are great but it's just making sure we have enough staff to really stay ahead of like graphics and and the technology we can u- utilize to make pitches as effective as possible.
4: It's a funny it's a funny one that on the numbers because actually, you know, I've worked with big development teams before and I don't know if Chris and I could sort of still keep and personalize our pitches and strategy if we were too big. Um, and so I think yeah, there is a sort of sweet spot where we're sort of At maximum speed but still sort of able to be over and across it all and part of it
7: sure yeah i i I never feel that massive development teams automatically result in a massive amount of commissions obviously we're a tiny team and we've we've had a fair few commissions so as lana says it just it would it's kind of whatever would work for us um and be able to keep our our eth the rex ethos Okay,
6: and do you think it's a good uh, an opportune time to be in formats and factual at the moment, with the kind of downturn in scripted commissioning? And well, that's you know, there's a there's a huge um, writers strike on at the moment. There's no end in sight for that. Do you, I mean, no one wants to profit from other people's misery, but do you think that there is an opportunity for factual and formats to kind of be more prominent in the in the coming months and years?
4: I've worked in you know formats and factual for you know 25 years and it it always it sort of shift, it shifts and changes a lot and that's really exciting And but I've there's always been uh appetite for it and I think it's exciting you know I've sort of been through the wave of rigs and I've been through you know the wave of you know sort of more fact tent formats and you know a, a sort of circle back to obstocks ob and so it, I think it's exciting to, you know, I think there's always going to be factual programming in in some shape or form, and and it's exciting to think about how we can push the boundaries and change it.
6: Do you do you see yourself as setting trends or following trends, or, or like a nice balance of both?
4: I think it's understanding the audience and what they want. I think it's very easy to lose sight of that. I always just think about who who's going to watch this and what do they want to watch and sometimes that means you're following a trend and sometimes that means you're trying to incorporate something different
6: and um can you can you both think of um a show within the kinds of genres that you're working with a show that you haven't worked on that you actually would have loved to have come up with that idea yourself which kind of which shows have you kind of envied for their ingenuity within the space you're working
4: i worked on first dates for a long time and so i've always been thinking up um dating shows and i think love is blind i I, I really, really, i just like, oh God, I wish I'd thought of that one. And then again, with the rig, I've always been trying to think of like a, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it actually, because I don't know if it's been announced. Any, oh, I'm not sure if it has. I know that there's something in production that I really wish that I'd thought of. Okay. That, it's a rig show. Right. Got I, that's you. the other thing. I do spend, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what, you know, the twist of the, the dial with the rig. So yeah.
7: Got you. And I, I'm going to have to have two as well, I'm afraid. All right. Uh, i'm a sucker for any kind of dating show so married at first sight i just think it's the most brilliant concept in the fact that they put a modern swing on a age-old tradition and i i just love it and the kind of re rebrand of it with their weekly meetups i just thought was fantastic so i can't get enough of that and then from a personal perspective i kissed a boy i just absolutely loved it um i'm gay and it was it was great to see Obviously, there has been gay dating before on, on many different platforms, but it was just a really unique concept and it was just very joyous. And it was really nice to see an accurate reflection of the gay community. I think sometimes there can be a slightly like accentuated and um, slightly stereotyped portrayal of of gay men especially. So it was just really lovely to see that. And it was lovely to see the wider community, straight, gay, whatever, are coming to watch it and enjoying it. So I, I, I love that and I wish... I wish I'd been a part of that.
6: And it seems from just from talking to you guys on Zoom, and also the content that you've been working on, it seems that you know you really want your your stuff to be entertaining and a good sense of humor and upbeat. Do you think that the world is really crying out for that kind of thing at the moment? Because it's it's been sour times recently, hasn't it? In yeah, world. I, think,
4: I think if we pitch cost of living crisis ideas, that we yeah we get shown the door quite quickly.
7: <laughs> I keep getting the feedback within. Pitching in the UK and the US, that people want kind shows or joyous shows. So dating's definitely coming back, but everyone says they want it kind dating, not not kind of cruel dating. So I think everyone wants a lot more heart, and that's probably reflecting the fact that we're all a bit broken after COVID and and a cost of the living crisis. Yeah. We all just want kindness and fun. So yeah,
4: I think for me, I when I was directing a lot, I everything I did, I always said whatever I can do, I'll bring heart and humor to it, and I think. That if we could continue to do that with our programming, that would be a good place for us to be in.
0: Lana Sala and Chris Raindorp speaking with Neil Beatty. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. And in the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. My name's Nico Franks. Thanks for listening.